0: Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer, John Williams, one film at a time. Starting with his debut as a film composer in 1959, through more than 100 films in 60 years. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Alright, so we have arrived at the film, which pretty much every John Williams fan can agree was the pivotal assignment in the maestro's career. It's The Reavers, which was released on Christmas Day in 1969. For those of you who are just starting to appreciate John Williams' career through this podcast, I think by the end you will definitely understand why this film score became so vital to his future career. You have probably heard the story numerous times of how Steven Spielberg heard the score to this film and had to get the composer to work on his feature-length film debut. I'll talk about that in more detail later, but there's much more to the story. If it weren't for some divine intervention, or at the very least, a case of knowing the right people in Hollywood, John Williams would never have written one note for the Reavers. Let's get things started with a quick synopsis of the plot, with some definite spoilers coming. And, as I usually do in each episode, I continue mentioning crucial plot points while discussing the music. Steve McQueen starred in the film as Boone, a man who seems to have no real purpose in life other than doing odd jobs for a man named Boss. Boss is the grandfather of the young boy Lucius, who narrates the story as an old man looking back on his life. Boone and Lucius, along with a black man named Ned, steal Boss's yellow Winton Flyer car and drive from Mississippi to Memphis for a weekend of rule-breaking and debauchery. Along with meeting the stereotypical hooker with a heart of gold named Corey, the gang has to win back the car that Ned traded for a horse. I would call the film a light drama more than a comedy with dramatic moments. There is use of the N-word, some talk of what happens in a brothel, and off-screen violence to Corey. Just a quick note about Steve McQueen's casting in this movie. He was a big box office success, thanks to Bullet and the Thomas Crown Affair, both from 1968. He turned down Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid because he did not want to share top billing with Paul Newman. Interestingly, the two would end up sharing top billing five years later in The Towering Inferno. So, McQueen went against type to play this half-dramatic, half-comic character, and ended up in constant disagreement with the director through the entire shoot. The film was directed by Mark Rydell, who was coming into his own as a director. The Reavers was his second feature-length film after spending about three years directing TV shows. His first film, called The Fox, was released in 1967 and was one of the first films to feature a prominent lesbian love story. Drifting quietly over that film was an Oscar-nominated score by Lalo Schifrin, who was insanely popular at the time for his theme music for the TV show Mission Impossible, which is so iconic that it has been used quite often in the past 30 years. So, it was a foregone conclusion that Rydell would bring Schifrin on as composer for the Reavers. Schifrin began writing a score, and some conversations on online forums indicate that Schifrin recorded the score with an orchestra. But, after putting the music to the edited film, Rydell didn't like what he was hearing. Because that recording has never been released, we don't know why the score didn't work. A few possibilities may have happened after that. Schifrin might have said that he was incapable of writing the type of score Rydell wanted, had another project to start, or Rydell simply fired Schifrin and looked for a replacement. The history of film is riddled with stories of composers whose work was tossed out in favor of another's work, and that's what happened on The Reavers. In July 1969, John Williams was finishing up his work on the Goodbye Mr. Chips score and was heading back to the United States to be with his family, who could only visit in London for a brief period of time. No new film score assignments were on the immediate horizon, so Williams was taking the time for a little rest after a marathon six months of work. That fall, news of Schifrin's departure from the Reavers was spreading through Hollywood, and Mort Abrams, an associate producer on Chips, had the perfect choice for a replacement. He contacted Mark Rydell and suggested a meeting with John Williams. Williams didn't have much time to write and record his score. I don't know when he was officially asked to write the music or when he started writing, but he stood on the podium and recorded the score on December 18th and 19th, 1969, just six days before the film was to hit theaters. That's a very, very fast turnaround, which, again, is very typical for composers who are hired as replacements. And what a replacement score this is. Again, I don't know what Schifferin wrote, but the music that John Williams created fits the film very well. It feels like it was written at the turn of the 20th century when the film is set. The orchestration in particular is what sells the score, and as I mentioned in the Goodbye Mr. Chips episode, John Williams really had a firm grasp on the importance of orchestration to a film score. Harmonicas, guitars, and fiddles are the typical instruments you would think of for this score, and Williams uses them, but not so much that they overpower the melodies. Every review of this score mentions the name Aaron Copeland as an inspiration for the style of score. Aaron Copland's music helped coin the term Americana in musical genres, relating to music that invokes a period of American history. Copland was the first to really tap into that style, and his colleagues called him the Dean of American Music. He wrote the film scores to Our Town and The Heiress, but his legacy remains with the beautiful Appalachian Spring. As we talk about the music for the Reavers, we'll discover if the comparisons to Copeland are deserved or not. I don't think they are, because it's not fair to the new composer to be compared to the person who might have invented the genre. We don't go around saying every epic film feels like Gone with the Wind, simply because it's a long movie that stretches across many years. And unfortunately, many reviewers liked putting Williams in that box early in his career, And even when he became successful, many were alluding that he was simply ripping off the music of his predecessors when he was, for the most part, just dipping into that style of music that made those predecessors famous. So let's start our journey through this score with the music that's played over the opening credits. It starts with a solo guitar with some piano underneath before the orchestra joins in. The harmonica is the best thing about the opening music. It makes the setting innocent and pure and also instantly gives you a sense of the timeframe of the film long before you know it's 1905. There are two main themes that will be used throughout the film, and both were just heard. The main theme that we'll hear a lot was on the strings with the more fast-paced theme, while the harmonica had the more relaxed secondary theme. Besides Boone, Lucius, and Ned, the other main character in the early part of the film is the Winton Flyer, the car that is driven to Memphis. The car arrives by train to this small Mississippi town, and the whole community is there for the reveal. Williams scores that moment very interestingly, a little more robust in the orchestration than the visuals seem to suggest. Sadly, this theme isn't used any more in the film. One of my favorite musical moments early on in the film is when Lucius is allowed to drive the Winton Flyer in a field. I should note that Boss, Lucius's grandfather, is away attending a funeral and gave specific instructions that the car not be driven. But Boone naturally disregards those words and lets Lucius learn how to drive. The music for this scene is filled with one of the main themes and a few orchestral touches to accompany the bumps in the ground that the car hits. And this is where you'll probably feel like you're listening to an Aaron Copland-style musical cue because it does feel very much in the Americana theme. The drive to Memphis includes a stop in a muddy part of the road that can only be passed with the help of the man who lives next to the road. Boone and Ned try to get the car out themselves, but after they fail, the man brings his horses to the road to pull the car out. Once the car is out, everyone, including the car, gets clean at a nearby river. The music at the start here is fun, very comical, without being cartoonish. I wouldn't have faulted Williams for making it cartoonish, because on screen we see Boone and Ned covered in mud with an over-the-top actor playing the man getting the car out of the mud. And now we're arriving in Memphis. I'm gonna play the music Williams wrote for the gang's arrival in the city, and I'll discuss it afterwards. When I hear this music, I think the visuals that accompany it are of mayhem, debauchery, and buffoonery. It's very comedic. But what we see on the screen are fancy homes, well-dressed men and women picnicking on the grass, and children playing in the yard. In this case, the music doesn't match the scene. Williams has done this before, not often though, but this seems to be such a major contrast to servicing the scene which Williams does mostly over any desire to put his signature styles on it. The first stop in Memphis is a brothel that Boone frequents often. A letter wrote to him by one of its, well, occupants is the main reason why he's there. The woman he wants to see is Corey, who makes her first appearance on screen with some soft lighting and a wonderfully serene theme by Williams, a nice contrast to the music we've been hearing so far in the film. Later that night, Ned comes to the brothel to tell Boone that he's traded in the car for a horse. Ned thinks boss would like the horse more than the car. Boone runs down the stairs to find the car missing. I'm going to play the music for this scene as heard in the film because it ends in a way that I would call typical Williams. Williams plays the run to the yard with some atonal music for a few measures to highlight the cacophony and the mayhem of the scene. Before the flutes and strings come together at the end for a flourish, when Boone stops in the spot where the Winton Flyer used to be parked. That little bit at the end is not on the commercial release of the soundtrack, but it's pretty much my favorite musical moment in the film. What
1: is it, a raid?
0: Ned traded the horse to a man who runs a horse race nearby, and the car has been put up as the grand prize. If Ned's horse can win the race, the gang can get the car back. Ned is confident they can win back the car, but Boone is dejected, and Williams writes what I would call, quote-unquote, comically depressing music, as Boone imagines the repercussions. The muted trombones are fun, and I'm not sure if that's a synthesizer dominating this piece of music but it puts a bit more of a comical touch to all of it. There's a big scene in which a fight breaks out after Ned talks back to the sheriff. That lands everyone in jail, but Corey sleeps with the sheriff and secures everyone's release the next morning in time for the big race. Lucius, who spent the night with a local family, learns of Corey's actions and cries because Corey promised him she was not going to be a prostitute anymore. What's worse is that he hears that Boone hit Corey for sleeping with the sheriff. Lucius runs through the racetrack and sees Corey with a black eye. This is an urgent music cue with some great writing for the string section. You'll hear that secondary cue embedded deep down played by the Woodwinds. So for the big race, Lucius is picked to ride the horse, and you know how it's going to turn out before the race even starts. But the genius of the plot is that the other rider cheats, prompting a do-over. Now keeping in mind that this film was made in 1969, the climactic second race is filmed in slow motion, or at about 24 frames per second. This is 12 years before Chariots of Fire made slow motion racing a hot trend. Burgess Meredith, as the narrator, speaks over most of it, but there's some wonderful John Williams music underneath, using the main theme and keeping the pace of the action on screen.
1: Carried on the back of lightning, racing on a jet black shape, it took me completely. Blood, skin, bowels, bones and memory. I was no longer held fast on earth, but free, fluid, part of the air and the sun, running my first race, a man-sized race, with people, grown people, more people than I could remember at one time before watching me run it. And so I had my moment of glory, that brief, fleeting glory, which of itself cannot last, but while it does, is the best game of all.
0: You have to wonder if the filmmakers behind Chariots of Fire used this scene as inspiration for that opening run on the beach and asked composer Vangelis to mimic those echoed plucked strings. Probably not, but you could definitely hear the similarities. So the gang wins back the car and returns home to Mississippi. Lucius has grown up a bit, and Boone is marrying Corey. Happily ever after, with a bit of Camp Town Races starting the music for the end credits. The Reavers was the 13th most popular film of 1969 in terms of box office. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which McQueen turned down, made four times as much and made Robert Redford, who was McQueen's replacement, a big-time movie star. In terms of staying power, The Reavers remains a cult favorite for Steve McQueen fans and for John Williams fans. One of those John Williams fans was a 21-year-old film student just one class away from graduating at Cal State Long Beach in 1969. He had just gotten a job directing an episode for the anthology series Night Gallery in 1969, so he dropped out to begin his professional life. In his downtime during Christmas, he went to a theater and caught a screening of The Reavers. This kid, Steven Spielberg, was enraptured with the music and the way it encapsulated the feeling of turn-of-the-century America. Here's what Spielberg had to say in 2001 about the impact of the Reaver score. Quote, I made a promise to myself that if I was ever lucky enough to make a feature film, this was the man I would try to hire. End quote. Through contacts at Universal Studios, where Spielberg was under contract in 1973, Spielberg reached out to Williams and they reportedly had a lunch where Spielberg was surprised that Williams was only 41 years old. The two talked about the film Spielberg had just finished shooting, called the Sugarland Express, and Williams agreed to do the film. And, as we know, that film began one of the longest-running film collaborations in history. So, if Lalo Schifrin had written a score that Mark Redo liked, we might not be celebrating John Williams as the most famous film composer in history. But you never know how the threads of history connect each other. Spielberg and Williams might have eventually connected anyway, at least in time for them to do Jaws. Spielberg wasn't the only person who fell in love with the score to the Reavers. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences liked it too, nominating Williams for the Best Original Score Oscar. After two nominations for Adapting Other People's Music, Williams was being honored for his original work for the first time, and here's how it went at the Academy Awards on April 7, 1970.
1: For the best score of a motion picture that is not a musical, the nominees are "Anne of the Thousand Days," George Delarue, "Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid," Bert Backrack, "The Reavers, John Williams, "The Secret of Santa Vittoria," Ernest Gold. And the wild bunch, Jerry Fielding. Will you announce the winner, Cliff? No, uh, I'm curious, but yellow. Please, please. <laughs> well, let's see. The winner is Bert Backrack for Butch Cassidy.
0: So, now you know the full story behind Williams' involvement in the Reavers, and I hope it gives you a better appreciation of the score. And it wasn't the last time Rydell and Williams would work together. They did a total of four films together. And it wouldn't be the last time Williams was brought in to write a replacement score, either. I think we can all agree that Williams was making major strides in his career at this point. And with the Reavers closing out the 1960s, Williams would see a change in Hollywood and he was willing to go with it. For the most part, musicals were making their last gasps in the movie theaters in place of action films. And as we'll see, John Williams was willing to change with the times as well. That will do it for this episode of The Baton. For those who have not been listening to all episodes, I strongly urge you to go back to episode one because you've got to work your way up the chronology to better understand the journey John Williams took through the first ten years of his career. And I want to give a big thanks to those who have been staying with the podcast since the beginning. As always, I hope you will reach out with an email to jeffswim at AOL.com with comments about the show or post a comment on the Podbean app. Until then, the baton is down.